Amen. All right. It's cluttered up here, John. It's all this stuff. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for leading us this morning. Um, and uh, taking your, your filling in, right, for uh, uh, the foyer. Everyone else is gone. Yeah, everyone else is gone. All right. They're on retreat. So um, uh, being in prayer for, for the foyer, our young adults is on retreat. Uh, good morning, church. Good morning. That's awesome. <laughs> you guys sound good, alive, and awake today. And uh, I think that's appropriate in the house of God. I think this is just uh, the most exciting place to be uh, on a Sunday morning um, all over the world because the Spirit of God is here. God is alive in our hearts. And so it's just so good to be gathered together as uh, Alliance Church. And if this is your first time at Alliance Church, we're so glad you're here this morning as well. Hopefully that this service and our community you will find refreshing and um, that's something that you'll want to stick around. Um, we've been in this very timely series called The Blank Between Us. And each week we've been addressing particular issues that divide our country and have even divided the church. And so we spent two weeks on race, uh, another week and really, really two weeks on abortion, uh, two or three weeks on the biblical application and theology of peacemaking. And today we're closing the series. For some of you, you're like, phew, thank God we're closing this series, right? Because sometimes it got a little intense, uh, especially when we had some of these interviews. But uh, they were meant to be that way. And um, whatever you see here, if, if you just think about it, it's, it's just really a little snapshot of the conversations that you are already having uh, in your community or at work or your kids are having at school or in their work. And so it's really, 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 really important that the church not be afraid to talk about difficult issues. The church needs to be a place where we engage the difficult issues. I think one of the worst things that we can do for our young people especially is to not talk about on here what people they are already talking about over there. Because if they're not getting a biblical worldview, if they're not getting a biblical perspective, then they're just gonna follow with the world. And so it's important that we can show our young people that we're not afraid to talk about the difficult issues as well. And so the main idea, though, through this whole series has been about how do we peacemake with people that we don't agree with, whether it's politically, whether it's theologically. We've got to be able to do peacemaking, bridge-making in an increasingly polarized America and an increasingly polarized church, just in the church ourselves as well. So each week, what I wanted to do was I wanted to challenge you through the teaching of Scripture or engagement with real people who are living through these highly controversial issues that peacemaking and not polarization is possible through real relationships. And here's the thing. Now, I started the, the idea for this series, again, about a year ago. But what made it really important and I think timely as well for me, because it's, it's very personal, is that I said in the beginning that if we as a church do not figure out how to do peacemaking, if we're going to be just as polarized as the culture is, I said that your friendships are going to fundamentally change in the next four years, if they haven't already. Um, I have a friend, uh, a lot of you guys know them. You guys know Andy and Steph, Andy and Stephanie Steinley, all right? They used to be deacons here, committed members, uh, love the church. Uh, we, we love them, have great relationships uh, with them. But they moved to, to D.C. like a couple years back, right? They moved to D.C., and then after he had done his time there at the patent office, he was supposed to come back to SCAC or potentially come back to Seattle. And so we kept in touch. But I just remember one conversation that 
Andy and I had on the phone when, when he was figuring out where is he going to live after you know, um, his work there in D.C. And so one of the things he told me, and I have his permission uh, to share this, um, one of the issues, not the main issue, okay, but one of the issues in his decision of where to live after moving back, uh, moving from D.C., is that he wanted friendships in his community that were more like-minded in his religious conservatism. That's what he said. He says, I, I kind of long for that. He has a great community here. We're all friends, and he has a great community in the broader Seattle area and through his work and his network and things like that. But he felt like his political views didn't necessarily have a respectful place. So this was one of the issues, not the main issue, but one of the issues, one of the reasons why he decided to move to Texas instead of Washington, all right? And when I've told a couple of people about, you know, my friends moving, you know, wanting to move a different place, my religious conservative friends were like, yeah, I feel like I want to move to a different state too. So I hear you and I understand that. But here's the thing, is that if we as Christians, if we play into the polarization of our country, your friendships are going to change. You will only fellowship with those who are liberal or you're only going to fellowship with those who are conservative or only fellowship those who are moderate, or you fellowship only with those who don't care because you don't care, right? And then at some point, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a fight like up here. There's going to be a fight in church leadership. Are we going to be a liberal-leaning church? Are we going to be a conservative-leaning church? Are we going to be a moderate church? Or as I have tried to argue from the beginning, that we need to be a church for everyone. Amen? Because I don't want us to be a church where defined by an elephant or a donkey. We need to be a church defined by the cross. Amen? All right? So whichever side you lean politically, I want you to know that you're so welcome here. Whatever side you lean politically, hard left, hard right, middle, or don't get, I want you to know that you have a place here at Seattle Chinese Alliance Church because we need sides of conservatism. We need that voice. And we need sides of liberalism. That's, we need that voice. But as a church, as a church, we are solely on the side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ, I'm with him. Okay? <laughs> so let me give you a couple of application points. How do we move forward from this series? Again, today is the last day. Some of you are relieved, all right? Today is the last day. How do we begin moving forward redemptively from this series, okay? So number one, it's on your outline, but number one is this. Let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. Really easy. Number one, let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. And here is my concern. This is um, something uh, for older evangelicals, okay? Older is maybe like 35, 45 plus above. There's a temptation for older evangelicals, and guess what? It is actually the same temptation for new evangelicals, for those that are like later Gen X or for the, new millenni for the millennials. We are tempted to believe, we are both tempted in the same way to believe this erroneous uh, statement. If we can change the government, we can change the country. If we can change the government, both sides, if you're on the left or you're on the right, both sides are seeking, think, thinking the same exact thing. If we can just change the government, that's how we can change the country. Now, this was the prevailing sentiment uh, for, the, uh, uh, for religious conservatism, especially from the late 1970s, even up until today. And the idea was very simple, is that if we can get Christians in places of government influence, then we can change the culture, 
We can um, legislate Judeo-Christian type values. Basically, we can steer the country from going to hell. That's the idea. And so some of you who are older remember the moral majority, uh, Christian coalition, Family Research Council, things like that. Um, they came into influence. And one of the most popular books during this time uh, was a book uh, called, uh, next slide, The Fundamentalist Phenomenon, The Resurgence of Christian, of conservative Christianity by Ed Dobson. Ed Dobson, Jerry Fowler, they were the leaders of the moral, uh, what's called this, this, this group called the Moral Majority. And what they were successful in doing is that they were successful in gathering up the evangelical vote. Some of you think, weren't Christians? Haven't Christians always been in politics? Haven't Christians always been like voting Republican? No, it's not true. From the <coughs> late 19th century to the mid 20th century, actually evangelicals, not the whole church, okay, but just kind of our stream where, where we're coming from, evangelicals and fundamentalists were actually very secluded from culture. They had a very hard line between church and state. And so he wrote this book called The Fundamentals Phenomenon because evangelicals were like phenomenal. It was amazing what they were doing and the power uh, that they were gathering together, that they were organizing. The resurgence of conservative Christianity, that idea of resurgence is because, again, because evangelicals, Christian evangelicals were not involved in cultural issues uh, before that time. And so they came together, and so we kind of know this, presidents like Reagan, uh, Bush Sr., Bush Jr., um, are all evidences of the evangelical success of putting Christians into places of power. But the question is that I want us to, you want to wrestle with is, did it work? Did getting the right kind of leaders in the right places, was it helpful for our country? Did it actually work? You'd have to ask yourself questions like this. Are there less abortions today? Is media more family-friendly? Are we a less hyper-sexualized culture? Are gay marriages illegal? Are our values as a country more Christian? Is there greater equality? Is there less racism? So we all might have our opinions about that, but I want you to hear from someone who has much more authority and perspective on this. 20 years after writing this book, um, Ed Dobson, 20 years after writing this book, The Fundamentals Phenomenon, he wrote his follow-up book, Blinded My Might, The Religious Right Can't Change America. And this is what he wrote. He said, did the moral majority really make a difference? During the height of the moral majority, we were taking in millions of dollars a year. We published the magazine, organized state chapters, lobbied Congress, aired a radio program, and more. But did it work? This is the leader, all right, of evangelical uprising, okay? 20 years later, did it work? Is the moral condition of America better because of our efforts? Even the casual observation of the current moral climate suggests that despite all the time, money, and energy, despite the political power, we failed. Things have not gotten better. They have gotten worse. And then this is kind of the most in indicting thing that he said. <clears throat> <clears throat> we have politicized the gospel with our agenda. That's, he's basically confessing sin. You don't use the gospel to promote a political platform. 
We have politicized the gospel with our agendas. To be part of the Christian right is to be part of the Republican Party. For some, this means to be a real Christian, you must be a Republican. That is heresy. This is his processing 20 years after, after this uh, really strong political movement. We need to hear this, church, because the temptation, listen to me, the temptation for Christ-following conservatives and the temptation for Christ-following liberals is the same. Get my party, get my platform in power, and the world will be a better place, and it just is not true. It doesn't work that way. What's interesting about Ed Dobson is this, is after his political activism uh, and all the heights of power, these guys were going into the White House like every couple months. They were in the news all the time. After his political activism, he went back to, uh, he was a pastor before, he went back to pastoring. And this is what he says. I got out of the circles of political activism and worked hard at living out our faith in this community. So he's, he's very particularly went to grab, back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, his, his, his old community. And he became a pastor there. Pastor, and his church just grew, grew, and grew. He says, we got involved early on helping people with HIV AIDS, no matter how they got it. We adopted, this is my favorite part, we adopted the worst elementary school. This is way before our time, right? We adopted the worst elementary school, gave them $50,000 to upgrade their library, provided over 200 volunteers that do reading and math tutoring at that school. So I decided, this is, these are amazing words, I decided you can change the culture. And that's like what we want to do. Like, I, I'm in line with that. I, I wish the culture wasn't so bad too. He says, we can change the culture, but it's one heart at a time. One school at a time making a difference, and that politics, while it's attractive, and it is attractive, because sometimes I think about, gosh, these guys are really high positions. They could just make a decision just like that, and boom, millions of dollars shift from here to there. It just seems like if we just had the right people in place that we could just get the right priorities in the right places, and it's really attractive. But he says it really doesn't accomplish much. Wow. Wow. And so if I could sum that up into like another practical point, redemptive relationships with people that are different from you, politically, socioeconomically, culturally, relationally, have significantly more impact for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of USA, not the kingdom of America, but for the kingdom of God, the national politics. And what does that mean? It means what we've been doing here the past couple of weeks it means having a real-life conversation with a person you may not agree with, like a Black Lives Matter activist. It's wrestling with a person who's thinking about having abortion, who goes back and forth, back and forth. It's really hard. It's having lunch with a coworker who's who might be, um, you know, gay. It's having dinner with your Buddhist cousin. We all probably have, all have relatives that are that are Buddhist. It's sharing meal with an undocumented immigrant who's working at jobs you would never take to support their family. It's having coffee with your neighbor who, who doesn't like Muslims, who doesn't want them to be in the U.S. It's life on life that changes lives. Jesus was not about changing the government. He was about changing hearts one at a time. So moving forward, second point. Jesus, to remember this, is that Jesus chose a side. Jesus actually chose a side. Back in Jesus' time, when he was, when he was uh, in the period that he was alive, it was a political-religious 
hotbed of contention and revolution. If you read history, you'll understand that there were, there were revolutionaries and Messiah figures before Jesus and revolutionary and Messiah figures who came after Jesus. All right? So in this time of being under political uh, oppression through the Roman Empire, there were constant threats of the Jewish people uprising. There were also, not only were there you know, political factions, but there were also religious factions. You had the uh, uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. One of the main things that divided the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. All right? And you think, wait, doesn't, haven't we always believed in the resurrection? No. Actually, like I said, biblical reviews, they, they, they differ, they change. Okay? But Pharisees <coughs> believed in the resurrection. Sadducees did not. That's why they were sad, you see. Right? You all know that one. Okay? You still laugh at it. All right? There were at least four occasions. If you read the New Testament, it is filled with with political environments and politics. And there are at least four, there's, there's many more, trust me. There were at least four occasions where Jesus was being thrust into political celebrity. Like that would be the way to free people. That would be the way to get a following. Let me just give you four real quick. Number one is temptation in the desert. We all know that one, right? If you just bow down before Satan, I'll give you all the what? All the kingdoms of this world. You will be the political leader. That's how you will gain your following. It's that easy. Number two, after Jesus fed the 5,000, he fed all the poor people that were following him. And they were like, this is the kind of leader I want who's going to give me a free meal every day, right? And so John chapter 6, verse 15 says this. Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, knowing that they intended to come, that the crowd was going to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by themselves. He wouldn't do it. Another time, when Jesus uh, was in the Garden of Gethsemane, they came to arrest him. Peter draws out his sword, right? Cuts off the, uh, the guy's ear. And Jesus says this, put your sword back in place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And he says these are amazing words. He's talking, referring to his kingdom. Do you think I cannot call my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Don't you know that I have a kingdom? And don't you know that my kingdom, the kingdom of God, supersedes the kingdom here? And if I wanted to, I could bring and usher in my kingdom, but that's not the way my kingdom works. Because a lot of us, the way our kingdoms work is through arguing, and we never think about peacemaking. And like I said, the arguing, there isn't just a constant arguing back and forth. I said, if it continues, the polarization continues, it always leads to violence. I don't think that's where anyone wants our country to go, our churches to go. And then, of course, the last one, the big political statement, when he was hanging on the cross, it is Pilate who said, we want to put on the cross, it reads, a sign that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This is Pilate who puts this sign up there. And this particular sign has a couple of things. It was meant to mock Jesus, really, the king of the Jews. It was also meant to mock the Jews. Here's your king, right? But what was so amazing, the, the paradox of this particular situation, was that the words were so true. This, the cross, this is our king. This is our king who wins. This is our king who wins peace through love. 
who wins peace through sacrifice, who wins peace through service, not with the sword. Jesus didn't come to change politics, to change, I mean, to change government structures. He came to change something much more difficult, and that is the human heart, amen? To transform the human heart, that is much more difficult than changing politics, and Jesus is the only one that can do it. He loved others and put more hope in a life transformed by the Spirit of God than a life shaped by politics. I'm not saying politics are bad. If there's people you have political aspirations, pray a lot, praise God, and we'll pray for you. Amen. Go forward. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. Everything that I just said about that, you know, there's something greater than just politics. We all know that. I, I believe in my heart of hearts that you all know that and that at your very best that you know that. The reason why is, um, let me tell you what happened that week that Donald Trump got elected. So November 2nd, 2016, right? That's when the election happened, Donald Trump got elected. Now, that particular week, what happened was the foyer group, it's our young adult group, everyone understand the foyer group? Okay, there's a young adult group. They switched their regular Friday night meetings. That was a Tuesday that the vote happened. And then I heard that they, because after the results of the election, they changed their format, their regular Friday night format, and they changed it, and they wanted to use the sanctuary because it was going to be a lament session. Okay? All right, so apparently, apparently, a lot of our people, a lot of our young adults, uh, through their own biblical values, their own biblical conviction, they voted, they voted Democrat. And it was such a devastating thing for them that someone else won, that they decided to change their Friday night format, have a year, and have a lament session. Okay? That's what they did. That's what they did. Now, what also happened that week was one of our brothers from the, one of our college students, one of our Koinonians, Gabe Kwong, he passed away. He got hit by a car that week. And a lot of the Koinonians, they were all, we were all at the hospital. We were all praying. That was one of our mind. We, no, one cared, no one gave a rip about politics. I'm just saying, when we were there, we are all about Gabe. That Friday, that same Friday where the Koinonia was uh, you know, going to have the, the, their, their lament service here is also the day that Gabe passed away. And what happened, I don't know exactly how it all happened, but I think the foyer, basically the foyer invited, because they knew what was going on, the foyer invited Koinonia and said, why don't you come and lament with us? And so it was going to be like a lament. We could all lament together. We're all lamenting and uh, different things that are going on. Now, when I heard about that, I was like, that's interesting. I mean, first I was like, that's really great that our little bit older adults are thinking about our younger adults and say, let's lament together. And I just, I thought that was wonderful. I thought that was beautiful. That was, there was such grace that was being extended. But then there was a part of me, I was thinking, this is kind of, is it going to be really weird to, to lament a vote? And versus lament a guy who loved Jesus, was following after Jesus, and was making a difference, you know, in our lives, you know, in our church, right? And so this is what happened. We were there. I came there that night as well. Uh, Donnie led worship, and Donnie did such a great job, brought forth scripture, um, platforming everything, talking about praying for our political leaders and things like that as well. And he opened it up. He opened the floor up to anyone who wanted to share. And there was a lot of uh, the foyer people on this side, a lot of Quinians on this side. Let me just tell you, that night was amazing. That night, I'm just letting you know, not one person shared about anything political. 
Every person who came up, who came up here to share, shared about Gabe. And most, the majority of the people, I would say probably like 90% of the people, the foyer, the foyer people, they didn't even know Gabe. They didn't even know Gabe. Someone walking on the roof. <laughs> they didn't even know Gabe. And what that showed was just such grace extended from one group to another because they knew that there was a certain perspective that we all kind of shared, that, that we all knew that, well, we're all people, many people in, in the group are, are sad about, gosh, four years, you know, four, this four-year battle, and, and finally, you know, the, the vote comes out and it doesn't go their way. And that's four years of, of uh, concern and anxiety and thinking about the future. But everyone kind of knew, everyone just knew that this wasn't something that took priority over a life of a person who was sold out for Jesus, who was actually making a difference. Not one person shared about political stuff. Every single person, the space was given to let their real lament come out that night. And all the foyer people, they stayed and they prayed. They gave coin to four that night. Right on, guys. Seek first the kingdom of God. There's no comparison to national politics and then a person who's living their life faithfully for Jesus Christ and actually making a difference. We, we know that. And I think you all know that. But sometimes we just need that reminder again of what's really important and how we really change lives. It's one life at a time. Third, uh, third thing, moving forward, I need to say a word. I need to say a word, and this is kind of weird, but I need to say a word about your online posts. <laughs> okay, I need to say a word about social media. All right, <clears throat> I need to talk about Facebook and Twitter. All right, so here's the thing. Let me give you some just words of, of advice. If you want to post something political, something that's really left-leaning, right-meaning, and I'm saying this because we're part of a community, all right? Post something, I would say, where you're actually doing something about it yourself. If it's something that's just more of an ideological bent, it's just something you feel strongly about and you feel self-righteous about, just, just admit that and evaluate it. But my challenge to you during this whole series has been, you're not helping if you're actually not helping. You're, you're not helping move your issue forward if you're actually not helping. Because you can feel and have an opinion about something, but expressing it doesn't help it either. Actually go and do something about it. Then you have the right to express your opinion. Now, here it is. Free speech, right? Uh, because we're a country of free speech, and I believe in free speech, and free speech is great. So I can't tell you don't, do, don't post stuff on, on Facebook, right? So I can tell you, go post and write whatever you want on Facebook, all right? But as a believer, as a believer, there is a greater value there is something that we believe in that has greater value than the Constitution of the U.S., right? I believe in the Word of God, and I know you believe in the Word of God, too, all right? And the Word of God tells us something even better, far more redemptive than free speech. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs that it may benefit those who read your Facebook feed. Okay, that's what it says. All right, actually, go to the next slide. It actually says, right, that it may build up others. So is what you're about to post, is it going to build up someone else? 
Is it going to build up according to their needs? It may build up according to your needs, but is it going to build up according to their needs? Then it may benefit those who listen. Honestly, free speech isn't that great compared to what Scripture says. Because Scripture says, because, the, because many people, especially now, will use their free speech to, to say harmful things, to say hurtful things, to say judgmental things, to just stand on their soapbox. But the kingdom value, the biblical value of Jesus is to use your speech and the freedom that you have in your speech, because you're all are free to write whatever you want. But the biblical redemptive value is to use your speech for the benefit of others. Put it this way. Have any of you, have any of you ever crossed a political post that was really left-leaning from where you are, or really right-leaning from where you are, and after reading it, you said, you're right. That was really good. You changed my mind. Oh, you love me. Thank you so much for posting that, that really you know, opposite of, of what I uh, you know, tend to believe. Thank you for showing me what's right. No one does that. No one's ever changed their mind. When you see a political left or a, you know, an, an opposition-type post that's you know, something you wouldn't agree with, what do you think about doing? Defriending, right? That's what you want to do, right? You want to hide their feet. You want to do things like that. I came across this uh, uh, Facebook post uh, a while back. It says this. Dear person, passionately pursuing your political agenda on Facebook. Congratulations. You have convinced me to change my position and future vote. Thank you for helping me see the light. Appreciatively yours. No one. All right? So be loving. Be considerate. On your, online post, on your online post. We are a community. We are a community. We're part of a community church. It's not just individuals. We are a corporate body. We are a community that values, that need to value the place for both the left and the right. We are a church for everyone. Okay, last thing moving forward, and this is really important. This is kind of a change of how we want to deal with some of these issues as a church moving forward. <clears throat> Bring your important issues forward. We, like I said, we do a disservice to the church. We do a disservice to our young people, especially, when we say that that particular topic is too taboo for our church. That just doesn't make sense. The Christian voice and the Christian, a Christian perspective and a Christian thought has something redemptive to say to any topic, any issue. There is no area that Christ doesn't touch. And so we need to be brave. We need to be courageous. So bring your important issues that you have forward. So if there's an important social issue, come talk to me. And we can have something like this. It won't be here, but it could be after uh, a Sunday service. It could be during a, you know, a weeknight. We have a, a, a discussion on an important topic. So let me just give you a real-life example. Right now in Washington State, there's... Uh, uh, um, initiative, I think it's called 1515-2. It's about the transgender people's use of bathrooms, okay? Now, normally what would happen in, in a church like this or other sort of evangelical churches is that there would be a table outside where people would sign, and you would come up, and you would just go, and you would learn, what, what's going on here, right? And they would tell you about this and something, something, something that you should sign, and then so because it's in the church, then you would sign, right? I don't think that, I think we could do something better than that, and I think we've tried to model it here. And so if you want something that you want other people to sign or some issue that's important to you, and whether it's left-leaning or right-leaning, whatever it might be, bring it to me. 
We will figure out a space and a time that's appropriate. But here's the thing that you need to do, not me, because I'm the pastor, all right? But what you need to do, because these things might be uh, really important to you, is that you've got to do this. You need to make it well-rounded. If we are going to have a conversation about a particular issue, we're going to make it in-depth, we're going to make it intelligent, it needs to be multifaceted, and it needs to be multi-perspectived meaning that you have to invite someone who thinks oppositely from you to the conversation because we want to hear it all. We need to hear it all. And then after that discussion, then if you want to sign, you can sign. If you don't want to sign, you don't have to sign. Let me tell you why this, doing it this way, is so important moving forward as a church. Number one, the church is a place where everyone can express their opinion safely. The church needs to be a place where everyone can express their opinion safely. Number two, by doing it this way, it keeps us honest. Because one person can't present both sides. It's so hard, like Phil said last week, sometimes you just don't know what it's like to live in another person's shoe. So we need to try to figure out as best as we can what it feels like. All right? Number, uh, and it also provides greater accountability of facts, narratives that are presented for a more honest discussion and a greater and more meaningful vote instead of just, oh, this is the Christian thing to do or, oh, I'm just supposed to sign my name here. Okay, I'll do that. Third, this is the big one. It forces you to study Scripture. Show us. Come prepared. Show us the biblical evidence. Read your Bible. Understand what it says for or against whatever kind of issue that you want to bring up. Show us the biblical evidence because there's something always redemptive that Scripture has to say. Lastly, and here's the really, really, really big one, really practical one. Doing it this way requires you to literally shake hands with someone you don't agree with. It requires you to literally greet, phone call, outreach someone, to someone that you would consider your political enemy. Doing this was so important. Actually, greeting a person was so important that Jesus stated it in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, that's just the way the world goes. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is the distinctive Christian position. Matthew chapter 5 as well, I told you, the Beatitudes. What's the one Beatitude that's distinctively Christian about the way we interact with the world? Peacemakers, right? It says those who make peace will be called what? Children of God, not Republicans, not Democrats, but actually this is, how, this is one of our distinctives of how we're going to be made known is our peacemaking. Those people would be called the children of God. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And here it is, verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? So you look at all the evil people, all those people that you consider your enemies. And you say, even those who are enemies or you consider enemies of the state or enemies of the cross, even those people treat each other and just greet each other normally. Verse 47. And if you greet only your own people, and that's what we tend to do. We just want to stick with our own people. 
people with our own political perspectives. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Jesus is calling out that there is a Christian distinctive of how we engage people that are very politically different from us or theologically different from us. That there's a Christian distinctive that we actually greet people. Something as simple as a greeting. He says, don't even pagans do that? And so Jesus is making this great analogy that God sends the rain on the righteous and then righteous, and he sends the sun on the righteous and the right. He is so, he extends this grace to the righteous and to the unrighteous. And he says, as God has extended that grace, that same grace to you, extend that same grace to your brother and sister and extend that same grace to the enemy, to the enemy among you. Jesus is just describing the way the world worked. And it's so interesting that he chooses something as simple as the process of greeting another human being. Because nobody, nobody greets their political opposite except for Christians. We're the ones who are supposed to be doing that. We're the ones who are supposed to be doing the peacemaking. So here it is. Has anyone noticed what part of the service we haven't done yet? Okay, we haven't greeted each other yet. All right, I saved that for the last part of the service. So what I'd like you to do is go ahead and stand up. Okay, stand up first. Stand up first, look around the room. Okay, I want you to find your enemy. Okay, and I want you to greet them. And uh, some, just look at, just wait, just wait. Don't, you know, somebody you don't like, you, 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 their politics are crazy. You, you wish they weren't here. And you tell them, I'm so glad you're here. Love you and the Lord. Glad to have you around. Would you go greet each other this morning, church? Go ahead and do that. That was good. Wow, I didn't know you had so many enemies. I mean, wow, this place is just about to blow up. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad we did that. I didn't realize so many enemies here. Um, Jesus is so practical. He is so practical. Uh, last, last thing. Uh, there was a theologian named R.C. Sproul. A lot of you have heard of him. Um, and there used to be this conversation in the church. It's very sharp about how people came to Christ. It had to do with predestination. Now, R.C. Sproul was known to emphasize God's electing grace, his sovereign grace. Billy Graham was known to emphasize free human will. So, for example, like this. Dr. Sproul would say that we chose God. Like, we're coming to know God because God chose us first. But Billy Graham would say, well, the reason why God chose us is based upon God's foreknowledge that we would someday choose him. This is actually an ongoing debate, but it was actually a lot sharper maybe about 20 years ago. But during that Q&A time, Dr. Sproul, he asked if he would, if he believed, because again, the debate was so sharp. He was asked if he believed that he would see, if he would, whether or not he would see Billy Graham in heaven. And Dr. Sproul, he said, no, I don't expect to see Billy Graham in heaven. And of course, there's a big gasp, right? But he said this, no, Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God. And I will be so far away from the throne of God that I will be lucky to get a glimpse 
of Billy Graham. I love that. These two believers divided sharply, sharply divided by theology demonstrates that we as a church, as a people, that we can disagree on issues, we can vote differently on certain, and all from different biblical perspectives and still maintain not only great respect, but church, we maintain great affection for one another. Amen? Great affection for one another. That's the spirit of God in each of us that breaks down all these walls. So let's build bridges towards one another so that we can be a light that brings others together and brings non-believers into the living presence of the living Lord. Amen? That's what we need to do. That's what we're about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this um, just timely series that we've been through. And I know that it's been challenging for all of us. And I know that there's, even for me too, a, a lot of reasons for having pushback, a lot of reasons for, um, a lot of excuses that, that we might have for not receiving the things that you want us to receive. But I pray, Father, that in this moment, that it's just really crystal, that it's very crystal, crystal clear. That what matters more than anything are the actual redemptive relationships that we have with people that are very different from us. Because if we're not able to be redemptive with people that are different from us, then people who don't have Jesus have no chance of knowing Jesus. And so let not religious, I mean, uh, uh, political ideology, let not that co-opt our understanding of the purity and power of the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the gospel and only the gospel that is mighty to save and change a person's heart. And it's for a person's heart, a relationship with God, not political appointments. And so, Father, I, I think we also need to just confess. If, there, if there's anything, Father, in us that, that, is, that have used the gospel inappropriately to co-opt some other religious agenda, God, we're just sorry. God, we repent of that. The gospel is pure. The gospel is hope. The gospel is mighty to transform the individual heart so that we might have a relationship with you. That's what it does. And so we thank you, Father, for your goodness and your kindness. And I pray that we as a church, Seattle Child's Lion Church, would continue to be brave, would continue to be courageous and say there is not, there's no issue that we can't talk about us. That there's no political viewpoint that we can't have a good conversation about where we still walk away respecting with one another. But more than that, we have affection for one another because we know that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ more than anything else that binds us together. We are followers of the kingdom of God. We declare that today. Let us, Father, be an example in our workplaces. Let us be an example in our neighborhoods. Let us be an example of our schools, of what it means to be a child of God, a peacemaker in the midst of a polarized world. Let us be an example in our neighborhood here on Beacon Hill that we continue to invite those who are very different from us because the gospel is what is power and mighty to say. Thank you, Father, for this morning. We love you so much for you are a God that gives us great, great, great vision, greater than what this world gives and a hope that is sure that we can stand on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, church.